Thank you for that thoughtful introduction. I, I really appreciate that. I have been wanting to come visit your church for the longest time. I have no idea what I said to Gary early on to get me on his don't invite list. But he's gone. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. And uh, I'm here and I have been enjoying the day already and uh, really thrilled with the opportunity to speak with you uh, this morning. Uh, I, I love this topic. This is really uh, very close to my heart. And um, it, for me, it goes back to I was in a graduate class on leadership. And, you know, these profs, they like to break you up into small groups and have you do little busy work. And, and one of the things that they did the very first uh, week of class was break into a small group. And here's your assignment. Define leadership with the fewest amount of words as possible. And so our little group got together, and this was years ago, and we came up with a phrase that is now kind of cliche-ish, but, and I'm not saying we created it, but it wasn't as well known then as it is now. We came up with three words, leadership is influence. And we were pretty proud of ourselves, and to this day, I think that's a pretty good definition of leadership. I mean, you can get down deep and get into all the complexities of leadership theory, but when you boil it down to its most basic element, it's one person influencing another, and they're coming along as a result. And so leadership is influence. But there's one thing about that definition I don't like, and that's if the phrase leadership is influence erroneously implies that only leaders influence because then we make a big mistake wherever you are on the organizational chart you might not even be on an organizational chart that's not the issue every one of us influences a circle of people that are around us be it a family be it friends be it co-workers be it you know dorm mates or neighbors it, we influence people in a very big way as we uh, proceed through this, you're going to see that this is a thoroughly biblical concept. But a lot of you know me, and you know I can't get too far into a talk without telling a story, first of all. So let me tell you a story from when I was in college. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, born and raised in Philadelphia, good, solid, blue-collar family. If you ever played Monopoly, my dad worked on one of the railroads on the Monopoly board, the Reading Railroad. And he was very old school. And uh, one of the things that he started saying to me when I was in high school, he said, son, you need to go to college. I hope you can afford it. <laughs> I don't hear any dads saying that around in my neighborhood anymore these days, but he, he made it clear if I wanted to go to college, it was up to me. And I felt God really calling me into some sort of ministry. So I ended up going to a little Bible college down in Miami, Florida. It was perfect for people like me because all the classes were early in the morning. And then you had all afternoon and evening to work part time or even full time so that you could make your school bill payment uh, in a regular fashion. I had all kinds of jobs when I was in college. My first job was uh, at an oil uh, warehouse motor oil where we were taking 55 gallon drums out of box cars and putting them into semi trucks and i want to remind you we we're in miami so it's about 130 degrees when we were doing this worst three hours of my life and i remember i got out of that job as quick as i could started making sandwiches for 7-eleven uh, have not had one of those ever since um <laughs> But the job I want you to hear about is I ended up in a place that wasn't called this, but for our intents and purposes, it was a wallet factory. It was a place that made wallets. Now, before you think upscale, hand-sewn leather, Gucci, uh, this is schlock. 
It absolutely, I mean, it was before Disney was there. We sold vinyl wallets to tourist traps in Miami, like Parrot Jungle and the Sequarium and Monkey Jungle. And we didn't even sew it together. They had a machine called a heat seal machine. And you'd take the vinyl and you'd heat seal it together. And then you'd put some cheap fake gold picture of a monkey or a dolphin or a parrot and sell it for a few bucks. 24-hour guarantee before the heat started (laughs) not cooperating and all your ID and money would be on the floor. I was working on step one. I worked at a large table with a large machine. The table was about as as wide as your arms, but it went all the way back to the the back of the sanctuary. Long wooden table. And at the other end would be a roll of vinyl. And you'd take that vinyl and you'd roll out a single sheet all along that wood, get it down here by the machine, go back up there with your box cutter, you'd cut it, and then you'd take another piece of vinyl and put it on top of that, cut it, do that about 20 times, have 20 thicknesses of vinyl, and you're almost ready to go. You've got this machine that is essentially a large steel plate with two red buttons above so that you don't get your hands caught underneath, because when you would hit that, the steel plate would come down. All that's missing is what they called a die. And for our intents and purposes, the die looked very similar to my Bible. It was rectangular. It was about that thick. It was made out of wood with metal all around it, except the bottom part of the metal was razor sharp. And the way we would cut these potential cheap vinyl wallets is you put that die on the vinyl, under that machine, hit those buttons, the steel would come down and force that die through, and you had 20 pieces of vinyl ready to be a wallet at the heat seal station before they put the fake gold on it and sold it for a few bucks. Okay? Beautiful. It was the most boring job I ever had in my life. Thank goodness God in His grace gave me two fascinating co-workers, Bart and Izzy. Bart and Izzy. Bart. Most important thing you need to know about Bart, he was the largest human being I've ever met. 400 pounds if he was a pound, and he bragged that all that weight was from drinking mass quantities of beer. A lifelong bachelor, as soon as that five o'clock whistle would blow, he was at the uh, nearest bar just tying one on until he could barely see. All right? Now, Izzy, polar opposite. Just a wisp of a guy, barely 100 pounds, little crop of silver hair on top, some of those big black glasses. Izzy's most distinguishing characteristic is he had false teeth. Now, the verb is important. He had them. He didn't wear them. He had them. (laughs) He would carry them wrapped in wax paper in his left front pants pocket in case an occasion would ever arise for him to need his false teeth. Now, some of you may wear false teeth, I mean no disrespect, but you have to admit you have some quirks that are a bit odd. To me, I noticed, for example, that when you don't have your false teeth in, you're always chewing on something that really isn't there. I mean, I'd look at Izzy and he'd be, you know, for hours just gumming nothing to death. And I'm like, what's that all about? But anyway, that was Izzy. Bart was always trying to get Izzy to come drink with him. Apparently, they thought the Bible college guy in the middle was a lost cause. We're not going to get him 
to do that. So we'll just move right over and try to get Izzy to go to the bar. Izzy kept saying, no, 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 until the fateful day he finally gave in. He said, Bart, if you keep your mouth shut, I'll go with you. So Izzy went with Bart, and I don't know a lot about beer drinking, but I do know that a 100-pound man cannot keep up with a 400-pound man when it comes to drinking beer. And before you know it, Izzy was just three sheets to the wind. Somehow Bart got him home. Izzy shows up for work the next day, a complete mess. His eyes are crossed. His hair's all disheveled. Most significantly, he's got his teeth in a different pocket. He's completely disoriented. So he pulls 20 pieces of vinyl down, he staples, he goes to make his first cut, and because he can barely see, he takes the die, and without realizing it, he has it upside down. He puts it under the steel uh, plate, hits the buttons, the steel plate comes down and totally thrashes the die. What was once a perfect rectangle is now kind of a Picasso version rectangle. It's all shredded and just a mess. Izzy immediately realizes his mistake, but because he's so out of it, he decides the solution is I simply turn the die back over and keep going from there. And now instead of nice, neat rectangles, he's making all this disoriented, disheveled cuts in the 20 pieces of vinyl. Very significant day in my life, and in Izzy's life as well. This was the day that Izzy was moved to janitorial services. But to me, it emphasized a very significant point, and that is all of us are a die. And we are all cutting through, pick a number, 20 other lives and shaping them very similar to our shape. No matter how you feel about yourself today, you may feel like you're as close to a perfect rectangle as they make. Or you may feel like I am the most disheveled, dysfunctional, disoriented person in the room. We're still cutting through and making a difference the way we influence people in their lives. It's thoroughly biblical. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to introduce you to uh, one of my new favorite Greek words. That is in 1 uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3. Peter is talking to the elders and in verse 3 he says, Don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. If you circle in your Bible, circle the word example. The Greek word kind of sounds like an English word. It's the Greek word tupon, kind of rhymes with coupon. Tupon. Here is the literal definition of tupon. The mark of a blow or a stamp struck by a die. Peter is telling the elders, instead of lording it over people, be a person who marks them as a tupon who cuts through their life like a die cuts through 20 pieces of vinyl. Lest you think that's a wimpy word, it's a very powerful word in the Greek. Look over in John chapter 20. Let me help you see how significant this word is in the New Testament. John 20 verse 25, kind of a famous verse. It's where the disciple Thomas gets his nickname as Doubting Thomas. The other disciples were saying to Thomas... We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. If you go back to the first part of his statement, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint. Greek word for imprint. Tupon. 
Same word. Think about what he's saying. Unless I see the forceful impact that a spear or a sword or a nail made in the flesh of my Savior, I will not believe it. Very strong Greek word. And then one more, just so that you're sure we all qualify. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. The very attentive can say, well, now wait a minute. The Peter passage, he's talking to the leaders. We're kind of back to leaders' influence. But 1 Peter 1, 7, Paul says, You all became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Greek word for example, tupon. All of us are this dye that cuts through 20 layers of vinyl in our immediate circle in life. Uh, This is not a hard sell. Most of us probably came into the room believing that. We influence our inner circle, be it our family, be it our friends. We've got this group around us, and some of us would say, I want to take that charge seriously. So for the rest of our time, I want to answer the question, well, what would it look like for you and me to be men and women of influence that is not only in a positive way, but in even a godly way? How would God want us to be men and women of influence in our lives? Well, to answer that, I want you to go back to one of the classic passages in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a very, very favorite passage of our Jewish friends. In verse 4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. These are the words which I am commanding you today that shall be on your heart. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you are sitting in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Start from the end and work our way back, whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing, and I would pose it under what it means to be a man or woman of influence, it's 24-7. It's early in the morning, it's late at night. It's when we are in the privacy of our own home, and it's when we are in the most public of settings. As if God knew and had Moses write, you know what, in the 21st century, People are going to try to, you know, excuse themselves out of half days. I mean, especially people my age, I hear this all the time. They say, well, you know, I'm a morning person. I'm an early bird. I can't be responsible for anything I say after dinner. Good night, I'm already half asleep. Well, no, wait a minute. You don't get a, you know, a pass because you're a morning person. Just like, oh, I'm a night owl. I don't know anything that goes on before 11 in the morning. I didn't get to bed till 3, you know. Well, wait a minute. You don't get an excused absence for half the day because you're an early bird or a night owl. God is saying, this is 24-7. This is the real deal. And it's both in the most public of settings where many of us like to show off our righteousness, but it's also in the privacy of our own home where we say, it doesn't matter now. These people know me for real so I can be a jerk. That's not the way it reads, Okay. So what are we supposed to be doing? The key, I think, lies in two terms in the beginning of verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. Now, I'm an old school teacher, and so when the first time I read that, I thought, good for Moses. That's good teaching technique. Redundancy. Teach this. Talk this. Emphasizing the verbal side of it. But that's not what is being said. 
there's two different Hebrew words. One is really well translated. The other is really poorly translated. You see the points on your outline. This is what I would propose to you. On one side, you see that everyday influence occurs, first of all, when I take time to teach. That's from the verb teach. It's absolutely right on in its translation. Verbally communicating what is important. A father sitting down with his children and saying, I want you to hear this from my lips. I don't want to face my deathbed and realize there are so many other things that I wanted to tell you that I never got to tell you. We're going to talk it through. And then secondly, everyday influence occurs not only by my words, but by my actions. That's the second word that is translated talk, which again is is poorly translated because it's not about words at all. It's about life. It's about actions. Uh, If I were to use a, a more common current vernacular, we're talking about sharing life, doing life together. Both of these are part of what everyday influence looks like. Uh, I often try to say, it's like influence is a coin. And you've got two sides to a coin in order for it to be an official coin. Except, you know, you mentioned I have 11 grandkids. I ask my grandkids if they know what a coin is. And most of them say, yeah, it's what they use at the beginning of a game. They don't even know the coins are money. So I got to get a more current example than coins. But you've got two sides to make up the influence coin, the coin of teaching, or the side of teaching and the side of sharing life together. If you still observe the quaint custom of having an evening meal together, teaching is the parent that says, okay, we're going to have dinner in a few minutes and you better bring a notebook because I have some things I would like to share with you over the dinner table. Very deep, very profound. We're going to have some PowerPoint, you know, some fill-ins. I got bullet points that are very significant. And there'll be a test before ice cream. You know, it's like, whoa, that's really significant. That's the teaching side, right? The other side is the parent that says, you know, I have no idea what that person's talking about. But after dinner, if you help me clear the table and get the dishwasher loaded real quick, let's go out and shoot hoops, you know, till the Warriors game begins. Okay? So that's how they'll do it. You don't want to think in terms of I've got one side but not the other. It's not an either or, it's both and. You've got the coin working together. In my experience, I I don't have this scientifically, this is just anecdotal from my experience, we're in a day and age where most people have shifted over to the let's share life together kind of mode. We don't have those conversations anymore. I mean, frankly, some of you are here for that very reason. That's why I bring my family to church. Let those people teach them. Let them have the conversations with them. I'll go out and shoot hoops with them, okay? Now, that's good that they're teaching them here, but you need to weigh into this. You need to speak into their life as well. You can look at this historically as the the pendulum has shifted um, 200 years ago. Very famous story. James Boswell, the biographer of Samuel Johnson. He was constantly asked, you know, hey, what's the best day you ever had with your dad? Your dad was a big influence in your life. And he would say without hesitation, the day my dad took me fishing. I was a child. My dad took me fishing. It was the most significant day I ever had with my dad. Well, eventually Boswell's father died and they all kept journals and diaries back then. They wanted to see what Boswell's father would say about that day of the fishing trip. They found the date and they found a very brief entry in his father's diary. It said, took my son fishing, dash, a day 
wasted. Back then, I'm sure he thought, I had so much I wanted to say to my son, but I couldn't talk. I'd scare away the fish. And so I had to sit there in silence just doing life with my son. What a waste because I had so much I want to say. Whereas nowadays we talk about what's the best day you ever had with your dad? Probably the day your dad took you to a ball game or hunting or fishing or something like that. A lot of conversation, probably not even a word. But it was really significant, wasn't it? So I realize as I look at my life, you know, I've got this teaching aspect that I need to build into the circle around me. But I also have the sharing life that I want to do as well. Um, As was mentioned, in 1980, I was hired by uh, the Swindolls to come and help them out in their brand new radio ministry, Insight for Living. And so Chuck moved the whole family from South Florida to Southern California. And I started working at Insight for Living and I just loved it. There There was a positive spirit around the the campus there it was just a really good place to work and i remember thinking you know i want my kids to understand this because this was my issue and i don't mean this as a as a condemning thing but i grew up in church i grew up in a church where everybody that worked for the church was boring was was dull was was stick in the mud was was sour was what's the hebrew word buzzkill You know, it it just, no fun at all around. And I wanted my kids to grow up with a different perception of what it was like to be in ministry. So one, uh, I guess it was around August, end of summer, we're having a high-level meeting at Insight for Living, and we're talking about the morale's a little down, and what can we do to get everybody encouraged? And one one of the VPs said, well, I got an idea. Let's create an Insight for Living NFL football poll. That sounds great. What is that? Well, we're going to pick the winner of every NFL game this season. We're not going to do point spreads. We're not, there's no money involved. It's simply every week they're going to get the, you know, the 12 or the 14 games that are going to be played. And you just circle the winner. You know, the 49ers, the, the Cowboys, the Jets, the Pack, you know. And then at the end of the football season, whoever wins the most games will be crowned the Insight for a Living football, NFL football poll champion. And as first prize, we'll give them the honor of knowing they won the Insight for Living NFL football poll. We had no budget. So we start doing this and I'm all over this. I love sports. and I think this is great. So I come home every night and I'm telling my kids about this. I want my kids to hear ministry is fun. And finally, my kids get a belly full and say, whoa, stop with all this stuff about work. I said, whoa, what's the matter with you? And they said, you're having so much fun at work. We want you to have fun back here with us. And I'm like, ooh, that's not really what I was going for with this story. I said, well, what do you want to do? We want a family football poll. And I mean, my kid, I got five kids and none of them are even 10 yet. You know, and I have a daughter who's the oldest and then the four boys. I remember my daughter, Joy, she, she picked the teams based on the colors of their uniforms. And she won. And the smartest thing I did, I went to the trophy store and bought one of those perpetual plaques. And we had up top, Butterworth NFL football poll. And then every year, whichever kid or family member won, they got their name on a brass plate. And you know what? We're on our third plaque. And I got granddaughters now who pick the teams based on the colors of the uniforms. And I just love it. Now... 
Can I show you a Bible verse that says thou shalt have an NFL football pole in thy house? No. All I'm trying to suggest is that we get creative and get proactive at both the teaching side of influence and the sharing life side of influence. And I always love that story because there's a personal part of it that let me just tell you. Daughter and four sons, one of the four sons when he graduated high school, he said to me, look, Dad, this has been really good, but I'm going off to college. I don't think you and I really have anything else to say to one another. So don't call me. Don't write me. I'm, I'm not going to respond, and I'm not going to initiate any communication with you. See ya. And he left. And again, my kids are grown. This is years ago before texting and emails and cell phones and everything. I was crushed. I love this guy. And he was completely out of my life. And, and I prayed and I, I was looking for some profound spiritual answer of how to engage with my son. And then football season hit. And in those days, I was the one who collected everybody's picks on Saturday night. And all of a sudden, the phone started ringing on Saturday night as he would give me his picks. Now, he was still pretty tough. He'd say, hello, Giants, Dolphins, Broncos. You know, he'd get to the end and he'd hang up. But every once in a while, he'd make that call and he'd forget that we're not talking (laughs) for about two minutes. And then he'd realize and he would abruptly hang up. If you've ever had that kind of distance with somebody important in your life, you know those two minutes are gold, are gold. What we say and then the life that we share around it. The last thing I put on your outline is is the most nebulous of the three, but it goes like this. Everyday influence occurs in the simplest of ways. Everyday influence occurs in the simplest of ways. There's a verse that I love, uh, again, having grown up in church, grown up with the old King James Version, it's uh, Abraham's servant in Genesis chapter 24, verse 27. The phrase I love is, the servant says, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. I, being in the way, the Lord led me. Now, not being in the way like, get out of the way, but like, I was just there. I, I just showed up. And the, Lord let, and the Lord used my life. As we've already talked about so profoundly in this hour, you've got to be thinking of people in your life that influenced you. How you're a different man or a different woman today because of that school teacher, because of that pastor, because of that parent or that grandparent or that uncle or that camp counselor or that professor or that boss. Somebody in your life has marked you and made you different than what you would have been had you not met that person. And for many of us, it's a godly influence that has done that. For some of us, it occurred in the simplest of ways. My dad was a very simple man. He was not a pillar of the church, but he was a man of faith. And I remember very distinctly, I was eight years old. It was Thanksgiving Day. My mother is putting this heavy winter coat on me because it turned cold early in Philadelphia that year. And she's giving me one of her little talks. And she's saying, you know, Billy, the railroad runs 365 days a year. Yes, Mommy. 
Daddy is going to work today on Thanksgiving so that he can have Christmas Day off. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, Mommy. Well, guess what? What? Daddy wants to take you to work with him. Oh, my gosh, you'd have thought I'd won the lottery. I jumped into the passenger side of that 57 Ford, and we drove to downtown Philly. We made that hard left, and we went over to the banks of the Delaware River where there was this huge freight yard. And I spent hours behind my father as he walked miles of track taking notes about all the different freight cars and the work that needed to be done. And then we ended up in this old red brick building in his office. A big room with a giant desk in the middle, small desk over on the side. It was obviously the hangout for all the freight guys. A a ceiling of cigar smoke where they had all come in to tell their stories and have a good time. And my dad, completely forgetting I was with him, goes into this desk and starts doing all his paperwork. And I remember standing in the door jam thinking, well, it was fun up to now, but I think it's going to get really slow from here. And finally he looks up and he realizes that I'm with him. And he invites me by pointing over to the small desk, as in, take a seat. Well, I was pleased to do it because there was something on that desk that I had never seen in person before. I'd seen pictures of it, saw it on television. It was amazing. It was something called a, follow this, typewriter. <laughs> typewriter. You're going to go home and ask your great-grandparents about that when you get home. An Underwood manual typewriter. And my dad put a fresh piece of white paper in and rolled that in there. And he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and he gave me a little wink, and he said just a few simple words. He said, you might like this. You might like this? I went nuts. I started typing letters to everybody I knew. Dear Mommy, I am at work today with Daddy. I'm on typewriter. This is really great. You know, and then I work my way through the neighborhood. Dear Mark, this is your best friend Billy. I am not with you today because I'm at my work with Daddy. I'm typing on typewriter. You know, I remember I was working my way through the 33rd graders in my class. And Dad goes, whoop, it's time to go. I said, really? I mean, hours had gone by. And I had, had developed this torrid affair with the Underwood Manual Typewriter. And as was mentioned, I, I, I wrote about this in a book. We, we call it Everyday Influence, and we chose to put a typewriter on the front cover. And I remember writing this story up on the great-great-great-great-grandchild of the Underwood Manual, the laptop. And as I'm writing it, and realize all the writing I've done all over my life, I thought to myself, you might like this. Dad, you had no idea how you impacted me that day. No idea. Well, he does now. He sees it. What what a gift. And you can do the same in the life of somebody, just as they have done it for you. What you teach, how you share life, influence will occur in the simplest of ways. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Lord, help us to take this personally. Help us to be men and women of influence who will teach and share life with those that are most important to us. Thank you for the simplicity of your word. I ask for each and every person in this room this hour that you would help us leave here inspired to be a godly man or woman of influence. In Jesus' name we pray.
listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.